This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. And I'm Ryan Warner. Restaurants are having a heck of a time finding workers. It got so bad at one bakery, the owner had to shut down for about two weeks. Jeff Cleary owns the Grateful Bread Company in Golden. And Jeff, thanks for being with us. No problem. And for some larger perspective, I'm also joined by Carolyn Livingston of the Colorado Restaurant Association and Joan Brewster of the Colorado Chefs Association. Welcome to you two. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, Jeff, you're on the phone actually from your bakery. Such a clever name, by the way, Grateful Bread. Um, what happened that, that led you to close for two weeks? Over time, I had a lot of long-term employees uh, with me that, you know, over time they decided to move on after they were with me six, seven, and eight years. But about two years ago, the market started getting really tight for labor, and then it got really bad recently. And basically, uh, I just have not been able to replace people that were qualified enough to do the work. And what is the work? Uh, well, I mean, it's at all levels. I needed, uh, you know, skilled bakers to be able to help run the operation, plus entry level bakers to be able to learn how to, to do the position. And the the labor pool just wasn't there, basically. And when you say the labor pool wasn't there, you mean people with that kind of background, with that kind of training? Well, with that kind of background and that kind of training, plus it's hard work. People don't realize how hard it is to work in a bakery. It's pretty hard work. Why? Uh, well, there's a lot of lifting, a lot of standing, long hours. It's hot. <laughs> there's quite a bit involved just to learn, and it takes many years to learn how to be a baker. It's not something you can do within a uh, you know six month period. Uh, I had people work, working with me that took six, you know, four, five, six, seven years to learn how to do it. It also occurs to me that bakers often have to get up pretty early. That too, also. It's uh, the hours are pretty tough. On top of that, so you just weren't finding people, and that meant you were too thinly staffed to be able to stay open for about a two-week period this summer. Yeah, nor- normally I, I ran about nineteen bakers, twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week, and we started ticking down to you know twelve and thirteen, and then we got down to about 10. And then I had a couple key bakers that had some uh, health issues. They're coming back to work for me now. But once I lost those two, we got to a point where it was almost not functional. And when you're so thinly staffed, it's hard to have illnesses and vacations, things like that. Sure. Yeah. I I had several people that were, you know, long-term employees that were due vacation and they, (laughs) I couldn't even give them their vacation. So that's why eventually I had a give my the crew that was left a break because they were working seven days a week and 16, 17 hours a, a day. And I, I was just burning them out. They just had, I had to give them a break. You know what I mean? And that's overtime. That's expensive, right? Sure. On top of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Carolyn from the Colorado Restaurant Association. How common is Jeff's experience? It's unfortunately very common. We've been hearing for most of our members that they're having a, such a hard time trying to find workers. Um, going to the point of actually closing, not necessarily the most common thing, but really, really struggling. I'd say upwards of 80% of our folks say that's one of their top concerns. And if they're not closing, then what is the effect on the customer? What is the effect on the restaurant owner? Well, for the diner, you're going to have maybe an interruption in service because there aren't enough people staffing there to help make your experience extraordinary. So that if usually there are maybe 10 tables for one waiter, maybe there are 15. Correct. Also, perhaps raising prices so that then they can start paying people more so they can incent more people. There's a little thing, Or if it's overtime. Or, right. But there's a lot of things that restaurateurs are doing to try to become a preferred employer, to try to work on culture, 
to try to work on some extra benefits. I'm ta- we're hearing a lot about tuition reimbursement. We're hearing a lot about um, even ownership stakes in a restaurant group just to, so they can stay, so they can have that longevity. I know several restaurants that actually get their bread from Grateful Bread, and it was quite a disruption to their their service. And I totally, my heart goes out to Jeff and, and his staff because I completely understand the struggles that they're under. Joan, tell us about chefs. I mean, it seems like, especially in Metro Denver, there's a new restaurant opening like every day. Is there really a shortage of chefs if all these There's not a shortage of chefs. There's a shortage of line cooks. All the support staff they need. And the support staff. That's where they're having the problems, yes. And what does that mean for a chef? Well, he's having to do triple duty. Or she. Uh, Or she. Yes, thank you very much for that. Because they have to be there. If one of their people, if they don't show up for work, the chef covers. And so that's an interruption not only to the restaurant, but to their personal life. They have none if they don't have the employees to support them. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about a shortage that the food service industry is facing. All right. The natural answer when there is a labor shortage is just pay more, and then you'll be able to attract the folks to your kitchen, to your bakery. Jeff, how did you reopen? Was it paying more? Um, The supply and demand part is forcing you to pay more. It doesn't mean you're getting better or higher quality people. My my long-term people, the people who are qualified, I pay well. It it has nothing to do with the pay. It has to do with the skill. And what's going on is is there is a pressure on wages to go up, which is a good thing. But the the problem is, is the skills are not there behind it, the pressure of the wages to go up. So I'm having to pay basically almost two people to do one person's job because they don't have the skills. You are hiring then inexperienced people, less experienced. At higher people. wages. I want to say that CNBC just offered this assessment of the economy here. It says the one thing lacking in the Centennial State's otherwise stellar workforce is enough workers. Unemployment is low at just 2.8 percent. Talk to me for just a bit about the pay here, Carolyn, Uh, especially for like front of house staff, for instance, runners. Is this just a question of restaurants not paying enough? They're paying as much as they can and as much as the market can bear for a small restaurant. Because so presumably that's passed on to the customer. Sometimes. It's sometimes passed on to the customer. It cannot always be passed on to the customer because customer will then stop coming to your restaurant. I've been talking to some restaurant uh, consultants recently, and they have said that for the first time in Colorado, they're seeing labor costs completely outweigh food and beverage costs, which is the it's unheard of. It's never happened before. Oh, interesting. I would always think people are the most expensive ingredient, but in fact, it's, it's been, it has usually it's been. It's been a little bit closer in their percentages, you know, 30% hmm. versus 40%. Now I think those are swapping. Okay. And is it a question to you of, of pay or of the pipeline, the worker pipeline? We have talked a lot about it in the Colorado Chefs Association. Uh, we think we've been our own worst enemy. The Food Network, as you know, is a very popular thing that people are are following. The cable channel. Oh, and you see the star chef, and you see the fun that they're having on the chew. And you go and you turn on, and here's Ina Garten, and she's baking this wonderful thing. The, the chew is a show, by the way. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so the young chef coming into this, or the young student coming into it, says, I want to be that star. That's why I'm getting into this business. 
And then you come on and your first month is learning how to peel potatoes correctly. Well, this is not what I came for. (laughs) I came here to be a star. Are you seeing a lot of people get in the business who don't stay? Yes. But the people that come in that truly have the passion for it, they will stay. So I think we have to become able to show the reality of it before we let people come into the industry. And it isn't a glamour job. And if it's for someone who's just coming in because I can't pay my rent and I'll stay for a month, that's not what we're wanting. Do you find that, Jeff, this uh, idealized version of what it is to bake bread? Uh, Idealized is a nice way to put it. I call it delusional. (laughs) Because most people in this business that are at their top have been doing it for decades. That's what they don't seem to realize. There's this instant gratification that they're thinking is going to be there, and it, it just doesn't exist. And so when the reality hits of the hard work that has to be uh, put into being excellent at what you do is is missing. And so the dedication is missing. It's all wants to be instant, and, and nothing's instant. If you I know. have never worked in food service in my life, and I want a job right now, are employers desperate enough to hire me? Absolutely. Probably. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Um, yeah. but, but that doesn't mean it's going to be a very good deal. I think that, you know, if you can show up on time consistently and have a service attitude, you can get a job very quickly. So yes, jo- I agree with that. Yes, very much. Joan, what is the Chef's Association doing to meet this problem? Well, first of all, Jeff Clary has been a member of our association for a long time, and I kind of want to go along with Carolyn when she said when Jeff had to stop for a while, I think we all went into withdrawal because he makes some of the best bread I've ever eaten. We were having some (laughs) carb withdrawal. So we uh, visited with Jeff a little bit, and uh, we have a culinary apprenticeship training program. We've had it in place since the 70s, and it's uh, cost-effective, earn while you learn. So the person is on the job while they're learning. Exactly. We have kept it in about 20 new students a year. Is the idea to expand that? There is now. And uh, we're going to be working with Jeff at Grateful Bread to start a bakery apprenticeship program where we can bring in students that really want to be bakers. I'm guessing that uh, he's not the only baker that needs workers. No, but Jeff was one of the first ones to realize this could be an answer for everyone. And so I get paid in part by the association and in part by the employer or what? You're paid by the employer. You are their employee. But besides working a regular shift and being paid an hourly wage, you also go to our classes for Uh additional training. And then once the training is complete... The apprentices not only have hours that can apply to a a degree, but they also have been trained in the fashion that you want them to be, and they can stay on as an employee after going through the training. So it's an incredible tool, and a lot of people don't know that it's available. Thanks to all three of you for being with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Jeff Cleary owns the Grateful Bread Bakery in Golden. Carolyn Livingston is with the Colorado Restaurant Association. And Joan Brewster is with the Colorado Chefs Association. They spoke with Ryan Warner. Up next, I get my hands dirty at an archaeology site in Golden that was open to the public. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
In the foothills outside Golden, you can get your hands dirty and find ancient artifacts alongside experts from the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. The dig is called Magic Mountain, since it's situated adjacent to the former amusement park there. Archaeologists have discovered ceramics, fire pits, and stone projectiles dating back as far as 7,000 years. I took a tour last week with a few local residents, and we gathered underneath a blue canopy set up at the site. It was hot, upwards of 100 degrees. So good afternoon, guys. Once again, welcome to Magic Mountain. If you're getting too warm, you want to fill your water bottle, put on some sunscreen, or just sit in the shade for a moment, that's what this is here for. Ours was just one of a number of canopies dotting the site. Most covered precisely dug rectangular pits of varying sizes and depths. Dozens of volunteers and archaeologists crouched over them. As we gathered around, we were given small metal trowels and asked not to dig, but to scrape. So that we can keep the units as flat as we can. And we do that because what's at the top should be younger than what's at the bottom. So if we don't keep it flat, then we're not sure with our relative dates where we're going with that. Right next to us, crouched over a pile of partially unearthed rocks, was Michelle Coons. She's the curator of archaeology at the museum. It was her idea to allow the public to get up close to this site and actually help unearth important artifacts. Do you mind if I get a little bit closer? Oh, yeah, come on okay. in. <laughs> so, so describe what we're looking at, what we're seeing, and, and kind of what you're doing. I see graph paper, I see drawings, I see precise measurements. You've got some measuring sticks here. Sure, so this is a fire pit, and it's filled with rocks. And what I'm doing is mapping each and every one of these rocks that is in the fire pit. So each one of them I'm giving a letter and then I'm taking the top elevation and the bottom elevation after I pull it out and I have a couple different pieces of graph paper because there's a couple different levels of rocks and eventually when we put it in the computer we can make a three-dimensional model of it. Oh, so each page is like a layer. Exactly, yeah, exactly. And you can see the, the pit has lots of charcoal in it so I've taken some charcoal samples and we'll be able to radiocarbon date those so we'll be able to know exactly when people were using it. You know, right next to you you know, not even just a few feet there are people, regular people, digging in the ground at an archaeological site. Is there concern that maybe they may find something or damage something? It seems counterintuitive to have people that don't know what they're doing digging in the ground. No, that's a great question. I mean, we're of the mindset that we'd love to educate people and get people excited about this. Oftentimes, archaeologists take an approach of if people don't know anything's there, then things will be protected, but that doesn't always work. And so we're taking this other approach where if we let people know what's here and how to identify archaeological sites, that maybe they will get excited about it and learn how to protect them so that they will last for future generations. And I found it really interesting. A lot of people, when they came over the ridge here, oh, there's a house right over there. Oh, there's the road right over there. We are so close to civilization. Yeah for something as important, seemingly, as this site. Can you talk about that? Well, actually, the site was placed on the National Register of Historic Places in the um, around 1980 because when this development, development went in, archaeologists in the area realized that this site might get impacted, and so we're really lucky to have it protected. But, yeah, it is a part of the community here, and to be able to have the community come out and experience what's right in their backyard has been really exciting, and we're hoping that the community will now be watchdogs to keep it. Uh, keep it protected for the future. And have people that have come on these tours found things that are interesting and exciting? Oh, yeah. We found in our public excavation the other day, we found this absolutely beautiful arrowhead. And one of the, some kid found it doing the excavation, so it was pretty cool. Yeah. My group didn't find any arrowheads or ceramics, but we did uncover a broken bone that possibly belonged to a deer. 
This isn't the first time Magic Mountain has been studied by archaeologists. In the late 50s, Cynthia Irwin-Williams of Harvard published a book on the site. However, a recent partnership between the museum and the nonprofit Paleocultural Research Group used cutting-edge technology to map so-called hotspots underground. Those areas are now being excavated with the public's help. Mark Mitchell is the group's research director. He says buried artifacts show up as magnetic when scanned. Things that are magnetic are burned things, um, pits full of uh, domestic debris, uh, pottery and charcoal and burnstones. So a lot of the things that people create in their everyday life turn out to be magnetic. Interesting. I would never have thought that. Subtly magnetic. So... uh, Uh, Something that's metal, for example, like a pop top or a bolt, is way off the chart compared to the the magnetism of the cultural features that we're looking at. Uh, So we use a very sensitive instrument that can pick up these very subtle variations. Uh, And it works, and you're looking at proof that it works right here. Uh, We saw that in this area right here that we're looking at, uh, there was a strong magnetic signature, much more magnetic right here compared to sort of the surrounding area. So you knew something was there, we but you didn't know what. Exactly. We did not know what, so we opened excavation units, and lo and behold, what we have here is an earth oven. Mitchell says the humans who gathered here thousands of years ago would have used this oven to cook, much like we do today during a pig roast. They dug a pit, they lined it with stones, and they tightly interlocked all these rocks together to make uh, what we call a heating element, a a rock bed. You would build a big fire on top of the rock bed, heats up the rocks, you pull out all the charcoal, and on top of that you put uh, food that's wrapped up in something. And if you want more of a steaming kind of a cook, you put in some more water or something that has water in it, like leaves or branches. Uh, If if it's more of a dry heat you want to roast or bake, you have less water. Once the food is in there, you cover it over with uh, soil and let the rocks do their thing. They cook the food. Several hours later, you pull the, the cap off, the sediment, the, the soil cap off, and you've got cooked food. Since the artifacts being discovered are native, Mitchell says the Denver Museum of Nature and Science contacted area tribal leaders. Told them about what we wanted to do, invited them to, to participate, to uh, learn about the project, to visit, uh, to provide input uh, from their perspective on what we were aiming to do. Uh, a number of those groups are coming out to tour the site and to share with us what some things they know and, and give us an opportunity to share with them things we're learning. We also had um, uh, some Ute elders come and uh, provide a blessing prior to the project, which I think is really an important important thing. Uh, when we excavate a site, we are we're consuming a portion of it. We're learning, and so we're getting value out of the ground. Uh, and a project like this that has a lot of public input lets us share that value. But we are consuming a portion of the archaeological record, and, and I think it's really appropriate to uh, give thanks for that sharing that we're, that we're engaged in. And the uh, tribal folks did that for us, and we're really grateful that they were willing to come out. And, and uh, my sense uh, from what they told us is that they're very interested in what we might learn here. Uh, they, they, many tribal people uh, recognize that archaeology has some 
utility for them, that they have an opportunity to, to uh, fit what we learn in with what they already know. More than 2,000 people will visit the site during the museum's public tours. It's something Mitchell says is pretty rare. Particularly the number of people. You know, the museum is going to end up bringing 2,300, 2,500 people through and give them a chance to get a trial on their hands for a few minutes and really learn about the value of the science and also about the value of what's in their backyard. That also is very important, I think. Because you're right, there's homes right there. (laughs) I see them. (laughs) People live right here, they recreate right here. And I think when they know that they live in a place where people have lived for thousands of years, it gives them a different appreciation for the landscape. It also gives them some sense of the value of this as an archaeological site. And, you know, maybe that helps with historic preservation more broadly. And And I do think people are. I think people see this and see its value, and they are ready to find other archaeological sites and go to the museum and learn about it. Public tours of the site wrapped up yesterday, and once the excavation is done, all the holes and pits will be filled in, and the area will be left again to nature. You can see photos of my trip later this afternoon at CPR.org. Let's stick with the theme of archaeology now and ask, who does the past belong to? Chip Caldwell has given that a lot of thought. He's a senior curator at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, and he helps return artifacts and remains to Indian tribes under a law called NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. Caldwell's most recent book is called Plundered Skulls and Stolen Spirits. It won a Colorado Book Award this year. Denver has played a role in this global controversy. I mean, this is happening literally all over the world for decades. And Denver played a key point in this history when in 1978, the Zuni tribe in New Mexico claimed what's called an Ahayuda or war god that was in the art museum's collections. And a war god is a carving uh, made from wood. It's about two or three feet high, kind of vaguely in has a semblance of a human. And every year, Zuni traditionalists carve a new war god. They believe that these are sacred living beings. They believe this piece of wood literally lives. And it serves to protect the Zuni people, to keep them well, and even ensures that the universe itself stays in balance. And so the art museum, though, had had come to collect this as an art piece. They saw it largely as a kind of aesthetic outgrowth of sort of the modern art movement, Picasso and Paul Clay and, and other modern artists. And the Zunis, even though it was now in a museum, still believed it had this sacred power and they wanted it back. And so in 1979, the Denver Art Museum did return the war god. And this really ushered in a whole new period of museums finally returning sacred objects to tribes. In your book, you say, quote, academics collectively saw repatriation as the triumph of religion over science. The repatriation debate was just the creationism evolution debate veiled in buckskin. That's what what, what was written there. Some even displayed bumper stickers that said archaeology is not a crime. Why were they feeling this way? Was it because giving those war gods back set a kind of precedent that they maybe had concerns with? Curators uh, saw themselves as the defenders of culture. And you you can imagine yourself as a librarian whose job it is to take care of all of these books. And giving them back is simply not in your job description. It was almost like being a historian and seeing evidence just be burned up and, and gone before your eyes. And so there was this deep 
passion that curators had that they felt that it was their job to protect what it is that was in their collections. And so they were very much afraid that if they gave even just a few things back, that would open up the floodgates to having to give everything back. Now, was there an understanding that this these objects may have been taken in a way that was not um, appropriate? You know, I... I think there was the struggle to come to understand that. Um, there was sort of a, a viewpoint, you know, if we're talking about 50 years ago, 100 years ago, where science triumphed all. You know, museums were more important than almost anything else in society. And so a lot of curators felt justified in taking whatever it is that they saw as evidence of humanity's story and keeping it for all of us in the public trust. Native Americans, of course, dramatically disagreed. Now, this act becomes law in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. uh, it was not just an adjustment for museums, but it was also apparently an adjustment for tribes and Native Americans. You talk about how some tribes didn't know how to bury the remains that they got back. There was never a ceremony for that. Mm -hmm. And some tribes have a great fear of the dead because touching the bones can lead to disease and death. That's their belief. Um, or they'd get a object back mm -hmm. and they're like, well, we just don't have a place for it. Can you please hold on to this for safekeeping? How have Native Americans come to terms with NAGPRA? Is there a feeling of responsibility to get these sacred items back, even though there may not be a way to um, to, to rebury them or, or keep them safe? Well, it's part of the reason that the floodgates haven't been opened. A lot of Native American communities aren't exactly sure how to handle these sacred objects and ancestral remains. And it's important to remember the scale here. You know, in 1990, when this federal law was passed, we're talking about more than 200,000 skeletons held in just U.S. museums. And so tribes suddenly had this huge opportunity to have their ancestors returned, but also this huge burden, because how is it you go about reburying thousands of your own ancestors? And a lot of tribes have burial ceremonies. They know how to treat their dead, but they don't know how to rebury their ancestors. And if some because tribes... there was never any idea that they would be dug up and taken. That's right. It was beyond even conception in a lot of Native traditions. And so a lot of traditionalists were worried about sort of wrecking havoc on their community spiritually if they reburied ancestors without the appropriate rituals to accompany them. Now, what about um, objects and, and remains of tribes that no longer exist? How did you deal with that? Mm -hmm. So the law, this 1990 federal law, NAGPRA, is really predicated on the idea of cultural affiliation, that there is a connection between ancient peoples and the claimants, the tribes today that want those items or human remains returned. And so one of the biggest puzzles under this law is what to do with tribes that seem to be extinct, uh, that really don't have clear ancestors today. And so in the book, I write about one of the biggest struggles we had to return human remains from a tribe in Florida called the Calusa. And supposedly this tribe went away in the aftermath of Spanish colonialism. But there's a tribe, the Miccosukee, who claim that they are, in fact, ancestors. And so we had to kind of work through these claims to figure out what is appropriate, what is ethical, uh, what, are, what are the wishes of the tribes today, and to try to imagine what would have been the wishes of the Calusa. Now, I, I read in the book that at first you told them you could not give those remains back, but then the laws changed and you could. How did that feel 
to tell this tribe, I'm sorry, you you can't have these remains. Yeah, I I talk about it in the book because it was about, I think it was my third day on the job, and literally I had to call up this tribe and tell them that we couldn't return the remains, which they believed were their ancestors. And for me, this was a horrible moment because I'd come to the museum, to the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, in the hope that I could find common ground between museums and tribes. And so, you know, just within my first week to have to essentially reject a claim of a tribe just felt horrible. And and when the laws changed around unaffiliated remains in 2010, uh, the Denver Museum supported uh, the regulations. You say from what you can find, no other museum wrote in support of of the regulation. Was this a big shift for not just your museum, but museums around the country? So before 2010, museums basically couldn't return any skeletons that didn't have cultural affiliation, that didn't have a living tribe that could demonstrate a connection. Like a lineage. A lineage, yeah, essentially a kind of genealogy uh, based on different kinds of evidence. And so uh, a lot of museums were stuck. And we're talking about some museums have 90% of their human remains collections were unaffiliated. They couldn't do anything. They just had to, to hold on to them for an unknown future. And in 2010, finally, the law was essentially amended so that museums could begin to return these unaffiliated remains. And so it was controversial, though, because some tribes and museums insisted that human remains should only go back to those that could definitively demonstrate this connection or affiliation. However, we think at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, the sort of ethical line in the sand is about informed consent. Do we have the consent of the individual or community from where they came? And if we don't, then we have a moral obligation to try to do something with them, to try to return them in some way to some community. Now, is Denver one of the few museums, or is that actually spreading out across the country now, that idea? I think we're, you know, there's actually quite a strong community, museum community here in Denver. So the University of Colorado uh, Museum of Natural History, the University of Denver and History Colorado, and our museum have really all worked um, kind of in the same mode, which is that we really embrace the spirit of the law as well as the letter of the law. You have to follow, you know, the basics of the law itself. But we really do see, I think, the law, collectively, we see the law as a human rights law. And it's really about not just honoring Native America's past, but also trying to ensure that they have dignity in the present and that, they, that their cultures can survive long into the future. And the places where objects once were that have since been given back, like the the war gods, there's now an empty space and a sign that reads, this object has been repatriated. Uh, You say you're leaving those spaces open on purpose. Why is that? Yeah, you know, because I want us to really embrace our history and confront it. I think museums, we've come a long way. And we need to move towards a better understanding of what the institution is and what we can be into the future. And so rather than kind of hiding the fact that maybe the museum ended up with some things that it shouldn't have, I think it's better to acknowledge it for us to engage with the public in a dialogue about how we should rebuild our relationships with the communities that matter so much to us. Thanks so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. An excerpt from my conversation from last year with Chip Caldwell, senior curator of the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. His book, Plundered Skulls and Stolen Spirits, won a 2018 Colorado Book Award. There's much more of our interview at CPR.org. Up next, an extreme mountaineer who says mountains have personalities. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
Hillary Nelson O'Neill is an extreme skier and mountaineer from Telluride. She's climbed Mount Everest and skied some of the toughest snow in Colorado. A legend in the extreme sports community, she found some time in her busy summer schedule to chat about her passions, her family, and her recent appearance on the PBS series Kingdoms of the Sky. So I called Nelson O'Neill at her home in Telluride. Hey, Hillary. What's that noise? Probably just me moving my phone. So I'll put that down and stop fidgeting. I'm a fidgeter. Are you? Typically, I like to, like, pace back and forth holding my phone. Well, well, feel free to pace. Uh, Don't let me stop you. Uh, Where are you right now in your house? Oh, I am upstairs in my bedroom hiding from my children. They're not the quietest. How old are they? They're nine and ten. And it's summertime, and they're just running around. They're crazy. So they're excited, which is great. I wanted to play you a clip from this uh, PBS special uh, talking about your love of the mountains. Listen to this. I mean, all mountains have a moodiness to them, have a personality, but the Rockies, the Rockies might take the cake. They're steep mountains. They're rugged. It keeps you on your toes. I think I could spend 10 lifetimes here and probably not do everything I would like to do in these mountains. We just heard you say all mountains have a personality, a moodiness, but the Rockies might take the cake. Why is that? Well, I think I'm the most familiar with the Rockies, so I see all their moods for better and for worse. It's super unpredictable, and it's uh, um, like that with the, the snow. You know, there's plenty of times I've been caught in thunderstorms in these mountains when I'm skiing, even in the winter. Plenty of times that you start out on a beautiful sunny day, and it ends in a windy blizzard and you just kind of have to be prepared for everything well in this special that you filmed uh there's a section where you were trying to attack a particularly difficult mountain which is part of the san juan range and i want to give listeners a sense of what you're up against so here's a clip from that in the heart of the san juan range mount sneffels is the highest peak for miles At just 20 million years old, it's one of the youngest mountains in the Rockies and still growing fast. At over 14,000 feet high, the air is 40% thinner at the summit and the winds can blow over 100 miles per hour. But Hillary is determined to attempt it. What gives you that desire? What gives you that passion to go to places that are so extreme, that are so dangerous, and that could potentially do you significant harm? (laughs) Well, I think it's all part of a a philosophy of um, exploring myself and getting to know who I am and more often than not, I'm I'm climbing these peaks with other people in a team. 
and the human dynamic is fascinating to me. And the way you connect with people through adversity is very unique and uh, I hold it very dear. <laughs> and I um, think that with all the distractions we have just moving through day-to-day -day life in the Western world, you don't often have those human connections and we definitely don't have those sort of rugged connections with Mother Nature and the outside as well. And so that's what I'm looking for. Uh, when you're up there, you're so connected to each piece of equipment, to each thing that, that is holding you to these mountains or, yes. or the skis that you use when you're skiing down the mountain. I mean, you must have to be in the moment so much. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I think that's actually what I love so much about it is it's a way to not be distracted, to get off that like hamster wheel that I think so many people have going on in their heads. Me, I know for sure. Um, I'm always riding the hamster wheel around in circles. And when I'm in the mountains and I'm really focused and, and climbing something technical or skiing something really technical, and I have to be super focused on each turn and and also, you know, the, the changing weather and where I'm descending to and the avalanche conditions and all of that, it, it just raises all my senses to a very heightened feeling. And it's, it's amazing. You're really focused in the moment and that those distractions go away. What is your relationship with fear? I know you were the first woman to climb two 8,000 meter peaks in 24 hours, one of them being Mount Everest. Yeah. I mean, clearly you relish what you do, but, but there has to be this element of fear there, I would think. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of look at fear as sort of another tool similar to my skis or my ice axes or crampons, you know, and I, I think fear, I think we all need a little fear in our life because if you don't have it, then you're not really overcoming anything, right? So um, yes, I definitely get afraid and I have fear a lot and really it's about managing it and knowing how far I can push myself before that fear sort of spills over into panic because panic is really bad. Fear is, is healthy, but you definitely don't want to panic. That's, that's not so good. So I'm assuming you're also managing the physical pain that you go through as well as the mental fear and, and, and pain there. Right. Well, and physical pain is, I mean, again, it's sort of relative, I suppose, in terms of, you know, I've had a lot of injuries just being an athlete, my, you know, from basketball to soccer to skiing to running. And uh, I am always just curious how my body will adapt to certain situations. And I know I can adapt really well to high altitude, but at the same time, high altitude is like one of the most miserable things that you can experience physically because of the headaches and your, your fingers swell and your stomach hurts. And, um, it's, it's just super uncomfortable, but I've done it enough now that I kind of know the the boundaries like fear like I know the boundaries of where it's uncomfortable but I'm still healthy and I'm okay versus it turning into like a real altitude sickness or something um, but um, it's like kind of the the satisfaction afterwards is really worth it well how much consideration do you give to conditions I mean like you've said they can change really rapidly I mean are there times when you've chosen to go out in in less than ideal weather and and just hope it's going to get better Oh yeah, I've definitely done that a lot and then and sometimes it doesn't and you're just like, "Oh, this is 
this isn't worth it, you know, or you, or you kind of change what your objective is on the fly because you start up something and it's just way too windy or, um, um, that it's colder than you thought or, you know, the, or uh, another really kind of dangerous time is springtime when the snowpack heats up and it starts getting hot is, you know, it, it, it is also unique to Colorado and the Rockies is that you have these super cold nights, but then you have these temperature swings in the springtime of, you know, 50 degrees, 60 degrees sometimes. That's crazy. So you kind of, you just have to be aware of that. And, you know, I've never regretted really turning around on something. So I think it's worth living another day (laughs) for sure. (laughs) Do you learn something about yourself each and every time you you do something like this? No matter how you best you prepare for anything, there's there's always stuff that goes wrong. And that's where adventure comes in. And I guess that's where I kind of like to be. And that's when I learn stuff about myself. Well, I mean, it's no fun when everything goes right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so, so let's, let's go there. Uh, You know, what, what is maybe one of the worst decisions you've made out there, but as you said, maybe becomes a big adventure. I remember one time unroping from my partner's before we reached the top and then one of my partners walked away from our camp and fell straight into a crevasse. But fortunately we were able to, you know, get her out. But it's just that thought process of like, well, there, there really was no reason to take the rope off. We just did it because it was convenient. And, um, but you learn, fortunately I've only been in situations that, uh, have been more like a wrist slap to some extent. I've walked away from those and you learn, you learn from mistakes and sometimes they're kind of more failures, but, uh, it's still, it still is part of life and, you know, you can't, you can't have the successes without the failures. I think you're listening to Colorado matters on CPR news. I'm Nathan Heffel and we're talking with Hillary Nelson O'Neill. She's a mountaineer and extreme skier who's featured in an upcoming PBS series, Kingdoms of the Sky. She's speaking to us from her home in Telluride, Colorado. You have two sons, Graydon and Quinn. Uh, how do you reconcile what you do out on the mountains with the life you lead at, at home, being mom and taking care of the kids? Oh, man, that's a tough one. Um, it's, uh, it's been a, a long road, um, pursuing this sort of passion career that I have and raising children. Um, and, you know, I grew up in a very traditional household. My mom stayed home. My dad went to work and it was great, but that was also all I knew. And I remember a friend telling me once, you know, when I was pregnant with my first son and freaking out, totally freaking out about how I was going to maintain this passion job. And she said, hey, however you choose to raise your kids will be normal to them. You know, so then flash forward 10 years and it is normal to them. And I try to talk to them as much as I can about what I do. And I've taken them with me to Nepal into the base camp of an 8,000 meter peak They've been to Africa with me. We go camping and climbing all the time. So I just try to familiarize them with what I do. And, um, you know, I go into their schools and do slideshows and presentations and talk about the different offshoots of what it is to be a professional climber. And, um, you know, it's, it's working out. It's interesting. 
how how do you think they see you? Well, I think they, I mean, I'm their mom, you know, so, and I know just from how I thought about my mom is that she wasn't even really a person. She was just my mom. And I hope that they see me a little bit outside of that. I really, I know what I want them to see me as, and that's some, that's, as their mom and somebody who loves them first and foremost and would do anything for them. But also I want them to see me as a person and as a, a, a passionate female role model, especially. And, and, and you thought yeah, your sorry. mom didn't, didn't have that identity back, back when you were younger? Well, you know, I, I was the youngest of three and after I moved away, she really struggled to find her identity. And that scared me a lot. Um, and I, I, I understand that she was an amazing mom. My God, she took us everywhere. I think between the three of us, we probably had, you know, 10 different sports and had to be in six different places at the same time. And, um, you know, she, her, she, she did, she actually worked, she was a boat worker and she worked on, um, uh, wood boats my whole life as a child. Um, and I remember that part of her and I love that. And she just had a hard time finding what to do with herself once we were all gone. And so I think that's motivated me to not lose myself in motherhood. And I grapple with how selfish that sounds, but I really think that if my kids can see me as a person and as someone passionate, then hopefully they will find a passion themselves and will learn to take risks and be adventurous individuals. So what would you say to them if they came up to you and said, you know, I want to do this. I want to do what you do full stop. <laughs> of course, I don't want them to do what I do, but that's okay. <laughs> um, you don't. You don't want them to do it. I mean, I... I, I I say that, but then of course, you know, I live in Telluride, Colorado. They have ski PE as part of their, you know, public education. Their camps that they go to are mountain biking camps. I mean, they're outdoor kids. They're outside all the time. And of course, I I think that's a really necessary part of a kid's life in order to learn independence and how to take care of themselves and just how to be sane in many ways. And so, you know, if, if they said that to me, I would just want them to be educated about what they're doing, you know, take their avalanche courses to, to know the risks and, um, know that it makes them happy. Well, what did your parents say to you when you said, this is what I want to do? (laughs) Oh, boy. That didn't go over very well. They weren't entirely keen on on being a a mountain climber and a professional skier. But I think part of it was also they just didn't understand it. It was really far away from how they were raised and even how I was raised. So it was something they didn't understand. And now that I've been doing it so long and they understand it, you know, of course it still scares them when I'm on big expeditions and, you know, I have to communicate with them my, my just general safety all um, from those trips. But um, now they love it and they see what it does to me and the, the, 
how it how it sort of feeds my soul and they they see the relationships I've formed through climbing and they are really happy that I stuck with it I think I don't think they you know like I said they don't really love the the danger side of it that they perceive but I'm still their daughter and I still seek their um, favor and I want them to be proud of me and I think that they are Thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Hillary Nelson O'Neill is a mountaineer and extreme skier who lives in Telluride, and she's featured in an episode of the PBS series Kingdoms of the Sky. The show explores the people and animals that live in three iconic ranges, the Himalayas, the Andes, and the Rockies. You can see a clip and find a link to her website later today at CPR.org. And that's our show. Thanks to editor Kelly Griffin, producers Anthony Cotton and Michael Elizabeth Sackis, audio engineer Michael Hughes, and technical director Matt Hers. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.